Hi, everybody. Again, I'm Erica Kvalsa Reader. Hi, Erica. I put on my glasses so I can see all these beautiful faces up early in the morning. And um, thank you so much for asking me, John. And this is a, I, last time I spoke here was we were across the street uh, several, like two or three years ago. And that's a much more intimidating place for me. So this is actually a relief to speak here. And there's so many things I could say. I'm somebody that has uh, relapsed several times. I am a 100-pounder. Here's my pictures. I don't ta- pass them around to prove it, maybe. Um, but I pass them around. Yes, my $5. Um, I pass them around because when I was new, I needed to see pictures to believe that this works. And I remember uh, I was encouraged to speak to the newcomer or somebody who was, you know, in their, their first days of recovery. Um, you know, when I came in and I was new, when I was 19 in 2002, I had just that feeling that there was nothing in the world that could stop me from eating. And that, why was I sitting here? Why was I in this room with these people? And it took a long time, not too long, but it took a few months for me to actually start to think this might work for me. And the only reason I thought it might work for me is because I saw my mother, she had come into program before me and it was working for her. And she was like my everything. My, I grew up as an only child um, with a single mom and we were totally, in a lot of ways, enmeshed when she wasn't abandoning me. It was a great combination. Abandonment, <laughs> enmeshment. Um, but my binge buddy had decided to go to Overeaters Anonymous and suddenly I didn't have somebody to drive through um, I'm not going to name names, but they lived right by the headquarters of a, a certain uh, ice cream facility, and we would drive through it a lot. And she started like driving me through drive-throughs and didn't partake, and it was kind of shocking to me. But at the same time, I was, um, I think I was around, yes, I was at probably at my top weight of 250 pounds, and. I was starting to get some kind of clarity on what my life was like and how I looked. And I'm, I grew up and I hid a lot. My mom went, to, my mom stopped using drugs when I was nine years old and went to bed. So she stopped functioning and I became the functioning, for the most part, person in the house aside from going out and making money. Um, and so I just, my life was about trying to hold our lives together and eating, coming home from school and eating, hiding from school and eating. Um, I ordered so many pizzas that I still know the phone number by heart in Burbank of this pizza place. I'm 47 years old. I still know that phone number. I haven't called it in 13 years, but um, it was like I ate a large pizza every day aside from whatever else I ate. That was like the go-to, the constant, and the pizza boxes went under my bed. And like that was my demoralization at that time. And so my mom's going to program, and suddenly I'm starting to notice that I am like really overweight. I'm really obese, and I'm scared to death of life. I'm scared to death of people. And... I actually ended up repeating the grade because I decided I didn't want to go to school as much as humanly possible, and then I dropped out at a certain age. So it wasn't I actually um, got my certificate and then moved on to college years and years later thanks to program. So my point in saying this is that when I'm eating, I am really non-functional. I'm not somebody that's, hi, I'm high-functioning, and I've got multiple degrees, and I have a fabulous career, except I eat. Like, that's not me. I'm like... I am socially almost, not retarded, but I'm just socially inept. 
I, um, my therapist used to say, Eric, you just weren't socialized enough. You just don't know how to do certain things. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I really wasn't. And you'll see in the pictures, there's, um, there's, I'm standing there with a horse in one of them. And the only thing that really saved my ass was being around the horses and the horse community because I felt really loved and accepted. But everything else was just really um, overwhelming to me. And so coming into OA at 19 and just suddenly getting that, there was something out there, Gesundheit, that could actually help me to stop shoving food into my mouth, into my body as much as I could get. And, um, and it was a slow process. I came in as an agnostic. I did not believe in God in any way, shape, or form. Um, and for me, when I didn't believe or have any kind of feeling of a higher power, it was a very lonely and painful experience. Um, and I don't have enough time to go into that. But um, somewhere in like year one or two, somebody was speaking, this older woman was speaking about her, her concept of a higher power. I think she was visiting from Santa Barbara. I don't remember her name. But she was talking about how God was always with her no matter what. And that whether it be in this life or the next, she was always taken care of. And I just had this overwhelming, like it just, it, in a wave, it came over me, and I just became, not hysterical, but the tears and the relief of, oh my gosh, there's a power greater than myself. That was so huge for me, and to have that happen in a meeting, I, I'm so grateful for that. And from there, I have built upon having a concept of a higher power. Um, and so I was in OA for five years, and then I never quite got to go away, which pissed me off, by the way. Um... I only had a couple of friends in OA, and I had fallen, I fell out with them. I had a sponsor that I put on a pedestal, and she was my everything. And then we parted ways, and I was just, I was floundering, and I was eating. And then I took a candle in year five, and I was like, I don't know if I'm abstinent, and I still like having binges. And it wasn't too long after that where I was like, I'm still eating in program. I'm not staying. I'm going. And so I left for eight years and left my own devices. Um, Still never got to a healthy body weight, um, and found another addiction, which was probably in there the whole time, uh, which was love addiction. So I am I have multiple addictions, yay. And <laughs> I don't know what kind of a winner I am in that respect, because it's not that our mother program, AA, but um, uh, there is other programs that, that I go to today. And... So for me, that was such a painful experience to go into what's known as withdrawal in that program that I started eating like eating to where I could probably choke on my food and like just check out. I just was nothing was making me feel better, and it brought me back to Owen in uh, 2002, and that feeling of like my go-to, my best friend food was not taking the edge off was actually for me one of the most frightening things I've ever experienced because I'm like, well, I've never been a drug addict because I'm a super control freak, so what's next? Like, what is going to take away this pain? And so I'm grateful that I came back into the rooms. I came back into the rooms with an attitude. I was like, I really hate this place. I don't like any of this stuff I got to do. But I knew that working the steps was really, really important. I knew that I had to get a sponsor. I knew that I needed to speak and let you know what was going on with me. And, oh, boy, those, I had three years of abstinence, 
and I got down to a certain weight that actually I did get down to my initial goal weight from the first time around and I was pissed off because it wasn't good enough for me. I was like, I still have a fat stomach. The men aren't lining up to date me. I hate my body. I hate my life. I hate you. What, you know? And so at that point, I was like, okay, okay, God, I'm going to take over my food now. I'm going to eat foods that I knew at one time I could not eat. And I remember having a discussion with my sponsor at the time, who, by the way, was relapsing. I didn't know it. And we had a discussion for me. um, Bread is a kryptonite. Like, I am lost if I eat bread. I don't care how tasteless it is, what fakey thing it's made out of. I will eat a loaf of it. It is not, it is not good. And we had a discussion. Well, you you haven't had bread for three years. Why don't don't you just have some bread and see how it goes? (laughs) And now, granted, I was already in that place of I'm in control. I'm going to control my weight. I'm going to get down to 150 pounds if it kills me. And somehow bread's going to come in there and be just fine. And I remember being at Earth Cafe on Melrose. And I ate one of those sprouted wheat sandwiches. And it was, sorry recording, but it was like orgasmic. It was like so incredible for this compulsive overeater who hadn't had bread in three years. And... I think I was fine for a little bit. By the next week, I was back at Earth Cafe. I was having a sandwich on regular bread, and I ordered three desserts, two of which I ate waiting for my car at the valet. Like I would, and it was on. It was on, and it was not pretty. And I can't remember where in that. I think I started creeping. My weight started creeping up, and I got to the point where I gained 24 pounds. And I was calling people in program that I respect and saying, I don't know, should I call myself abstinent anymore? I don't know. I'm, I'm eating. I'm technically abstinent, but I'm gaining weight. And then I got to a certain point. Uh, oh, and by the way, I always like to add, I put about 20 foods on my abstinence, and I laminated the card that I on, <laughs> thinking that if I laminated it and it was on my abstinence, that my ego would not want to break my abstinence and lose some kind of status I had in Overeaters Anonymous. <sighs> when I got to the point where I was, I think I ate the, what I thought was the least offensive thing on that list, which was malt balls. <laughs> and I started at malt balls and worked my way up until it was like, oh, but at least I'm not having pizza today. That's like, you know. And um, when I got to that point, it had exploded. I got to 222 pounds. I had two sets of clothes I could wear. I had already worn the legs out of the, the linen pants I bought at Target. Um, and I sat, the good thing is that I sat for me. I sat in the rooms, even though I was pissed off and I was angry and I was in a severe amount of pain. I sat in the rooms and I watched you guys. And I watched especially those who had recovery. And I would have moments where I was like, oh God, it was really great to wake up absently. And it was really great to not feel so sick and hungover. And it was really great to feel like I had some kind of connection with the higher power and that I wasn't lost flapping in the damn wind. Um, I mean, the list of things that I experienced while I was in relapse, I could go on. It was really one of the most agonizing periods of my life. And, and I've heard this many times and I've experienced it a head full of program and a belly full of food 
is a humbling, humbling experience, and I needed it because I somehow didn't get step one. I thought I hadn't had step one. I had been told when I came in, the fact that you walk into the room means that you get that you're powerless over food. And for me, that was BS. I had to get down to my core, down to my bones and the marrow within my bones that I cannot manage and control my food. That I can't say, oh, my food was good today. Oh, I did such and such today. I did this today. I did that today. Too many eyes. Too many eyes. I had to be, my ego, as it talks about in AA Comes of Age, had to be so deflated to the point where I was like, and it was a pretty, it was not pretty. I, I decided to start sharing about it in meetings and talking about the pain and the thousands of calories I was eating every day. And um, people that, I, I thought people weren't coming around me because they were judging me because I was eating, but actually I'm kind of a bitch when I'm eating. So <laughs> I don't think it was like I had leprosy. It was like, I'm kind of scary when I'm eating. Um, I've been told I'm kind of scary even when I'm not eating. So um, that was not a good thing. But I had those moments where I was like, I'm at a meeting, I'm sharing that I'm going to go home and eat and that I ate before I came to the meeting, and I don't know how to stop, and there were some days where I didn't want to stop. I was like, I want to eat every damn bit of food that I was denied for three years. And so those moments of clarity where I would have the tears and the almost begging, God, please show me what to do. Please help me to find the right sponsor because I was sponsorless. Please give me the willingness to stop eating today. And so I would get a day or two Sometimes I would get a couple of weeks, and then life would show up, and I would eat again. And um, what that did for me, the fact that I didn't, I would have moments where I was talking to fellows who, I love these people still today, but they would be like, oh, my life is so bad, and it sucks, and everything's terrible, and I'm like, and you're abstinent. If I could get one day, one day, ah. And somehow, somehow, I became willing enough. And I remember standing at, we had a, the old OA office in lovely Reseda. <laughs> if any of you know that place. Um, I was standing at the podium sharing, and I think I was talking about, I want to go home and eat tonight. And I was crying. I've done a lot of crying in these meetings. And there's a, there's a banner up that said, there's nothing more important, basically, than abstinence. Or nothing, abstinence is... Whatever. And it was spelled incorrect, by the way. So somebody had penned in the proper spelling. I'll remember it. <laughs> and I turned to that and I said, when am I going to feel that there's nothing more important than my absence? When am I ever going to get to that place again? And something turned that night. Something shifted for me where it was no longer an option for me to turn to food. It had been erased. And it wasn't as if I erased it. It was that the decision was made that I will do whatever it takes to go to God and to go to program in order not to eat today. That's it. And that is a, such a miracle and such a gift. Um, I will have 13 years if I'm willing next month. And that is the result for me. I don't recommend relapse. But I did it in such a grand fashion <laughs> that it gave me that preciousness of no matter what program I'm in, 
no matter what desire I have in my life, there's nothing more important than being abstinent. And they say, well, God's more important than being abstinent. Well, for me, if I'm eating, there's no road to my higher power. I am completely blocked off. And for me, when I'm eating, I'm abusing myself. I am in self-hatred. I am in it's a violence. When I eat, I eat in mass quantities to the point where I'm so sick I w- that I used to wish I was a bulimic. No offense intended to any bulimic because I don't wish that on anybody. But that feeling of I just I just can't function uh, when I'm eating. So um, how much time do I have left? You have close to about six. Oh, okay. So these last 13 years have been about living life free from the obsession to eat. Um, free from that, like every thought is not about food. Now every thought can be about people, places, and things, and how scary the world is, and how much I live in fear, and walking through, um, in these 13 years I've walked through being disabled, I found out I had a form of congestive heart failure, which was probably linked to Fen-Fen, by the way, and um, I became very, very ill. I couldn't work for a number of years. I didn't have a place of my own to live for a year and a half. Everything I owned was in storage. And I walked through triumphs, like a couple years, actually last year I went back to Ireland to ride horses. I hadn't been in 28 years. And I had a great time. And I'm somebody that I can make any fabulous experience terrible. Like, I will (laughs) Well, this isn't perfect. That person isn't smiling enough. These people aren't embracing me with the love and joy that I'm expecting. Thank you. Um, And so, gosh, five minutes. Um, And so I think what I want to talk about is growing my faith and learning to accept life on life's terms. Oh, that can be so hard. And learning to love and appreciate myself. I know that sounds cheesy, but um, if my disease is based off of self-hatred, then it kind of makes sense for me to learn how to love and appreciate myself. And the more that I love and appreciate myself, the more I open up to the good things that are coming my way. Because I believe that the good is always coming, but it's me that says, no, no, I can't, I don't, I'm not good enough, it's okay, you can take your good, keep it, and I'm just going to stand here and be miserable and be some kind of martyr and well, sure, I'll be good. Um, and as far as my relationship with my higher power, I was working all the way, I've worked through the steps many, many times. I don't believe in getting through the steps once and then doing 10, 11, and 12 um, over and over again. I still do a step 10 every night that I send to my sponsor. I still am am in step 11 and 12. Um, But as I was going through the steps that time, I was on step 11 and my sponsor and I spoke about enlarging my spiritual life. And um, so I decided to start taking classes at my church and really getting into the teaching and learning more about it. And my whole life began to really shift and change. And long story short, I last year became a practitioner in my church, and now I'm on the road to becoming a minister. Who knew that was going to happen? But 
Yeah. So um, the gifts keep coming, and along with that, I'm still me. I still have my personality. I still have my, as it talks about in the big book, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, you know, I just have that inability to get along well with others. Like, I already have people in my ministerial class, and I'm like, I can't stand her. Why is this person not doing things the way I think they should? And then I get to do this magical thing of looking at my part and looking at my personality and where is it that I do these things. Oh, my God, that's so humbling because I just want to be, you know, anyway. Uh, I just want to be right, and I want you all to change so I can feel better. (laughs) But the wonderful thing, because I want to keep it on, well, food and also just, Without my higher power and my connection to my higher power, none of this is possible. And I do want to put, make a big shout-out for meditation. Um, it was mentioned earlier. I am an anxiety-ridden gal. That is who I am, or at least who I was. And with meditation, I meditate twice a day, usually very short in the morning, because I get up either 4 or 5 a.m. every morning. So you get five minutes, five to six minutes there. But it's 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes 30 in the evening. And what that does for me is I become less reactive and I get more open to God's guidance and inspiration and not in my, um, oh, I think I'm going to react to this person and then clean up the mess afterwards. Like, that that doesn't really work. Um, And I know that the more that I learn to trust my higher power, the more I am not so afraid. And I used to have a sponsor that would say, Erica, look at the record. Look, let's look at the record of all the times, basically 100%, where you have been taken care of beyond your imagination. And I have things going on in my life that I just don't get why they're not working out. I mean, it's not that they're not working out in my favor. They're just not working out. Like my car, I got in a car accident in February. I still don't have my car back. They brought it back to me four times fixed incorrectly. All I can do is take the next indicated action. God's been taking care of me beautifully. I have gorgeous rental cars. They keep putting gas in them and handing them to me. And like one way or another, the car thing's going to get worked out. My home is, I just moved and the home is not to my, it is not good for me. Um, and I may be moving, but I don't know. I haven't heard the final word on that. And so some days I'm, like, rallying against these things. And my job, I will not go into my job. Um, <laughs> but I'm, some days I'm just rallying against it. Like, I'm one of those, like, let's change the car, let's change the house, let's change the job right now. And God's saying, not right now. Let's just wait a little bit longer. And when I let go and say, and I hear my sponsor say, why didn't you put that in your God box? And I go, okay. And I walk myself over to my God box, which is now in my living room, on my coffee table, with index cards sitting on it, and a pen. So there's no excuse for me to walk over and say, Dear God, I give my house to you, my car to you, my job to you, whatever else to you. Fold it up and put it in the box. And then I have, thank you, I'll wrap up. And then I have those days where I just let go and let God. And I'm like, okay, I'll just do what's in front of me today. And basically, the most important thing, as I said earlier, is that I wake up and I'm abstinent. And that I have that, that I'm free from the bondage of that, it's almost like slavery. That need to compulsively eat is gone for today. And that is, that's just a miracle that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. So, thanks for listening. <laughs> This is a time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, 
Please remember that the opinions I shared with you today are my own. Is that not a lie? I'm not kidding. <laughs> and not those of Rotary's Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. So, questions? Go ahead. Thank you so much for your share. Uh, what is your meditation like? What's your process? Um, okay, well, it started out, oh, what is my meditation process? That's the question. I started out setting a timer for five minutes, and for me that was torturous, but I did it because I was directed to do so. And then I found a really great meditation app through a fellow, actually, and did a lot of guided meditations. For me, I needed to have something that was directing my mind during the meditation or else I would just go off. Um, And then in my studies, my spiritual studies, I was encouraged to do a form of meditation called Vipassana, which is basically breathing. I am breathing in, I am breathing out, just focusing on the breath. And so now I crave that. I don't always, sometimes I do the guided meditations, but if I just set the timer and do I am breathing in, I am breathing out, after the 10-minute mark, like, I downshift, and I feel so good. If I can only do, like, 10 minutes, I'm kind of like, ah, you know. Um, so that's basically what it looks like, and if I skip it, I feel it. Very, like, the next day I'm much more reactive. So that's the process for me. Thanks. Um, you mentioned having... Discovering you had a hard problem, probably from the pen um, Did you have to go through some kind of amends with with yourself or your body in terms of like you know that actions that you took that resulted in health problems? Mm-hmm. Okay. Question yes. uh, the question is. Um, after being diagnosed with the heart issue, which was cardiomyopathy, I didn't mention that. Um, did I take any, do any personal work to try to move past that or, um, okay. So for me, I did, I was chronically ill for about eight years. Um, and in the first two years, I was so sick that if I got off the couch and went for a five minute walk, I was sick for a day or two afterwards. And I was one step away from, they told my cardiologist, um, told me if I got any sicker, I, I would have to talk about a heart transplant. I was, like, very close to that. And I, the, the condition is a hardening of the heart. And there were some events that happened right before I got sick in which that involved my father and my mother and my grandmother. And the biggest one was my father. And the thing he had said to me was, I wish God would soften your heart. And, boy... I had to do work around him, and I had to do work around my mom, and work around my resentment on how she handled things with my grandmother, and I had to really, I just did a lot of work on, like, believing that I could be well, and forgiving myself for, you know, what I, what I perceived myself to have done, um, but I think the stuff around my father was probably the biggest, um, and it, it got to a point where I just kept moving forward. I was really desperate to be well at, at one point, and it was like a clutching desperation. And the more I had that clutching desperation, the harder it was to get better. So when I finally, I remember walking around this track in North Hollywood, and I was on the phone with somebody, and I was like, they were kind of saying, you got to accept that if you have this for the rest of your life, like, that it's okay. And I was like, are you kidding me? No! And I think, I remember saying the prayer, God, okay, like, 
okay, if I have to be sick with this the rest of my life, it's going to be okay. And something began to shift. And one day I was walking down the street after seeing a new, for me, a lot of it had to come with holistic medicine. And I was walking down the street on a regular walk, and I came to me, I am no longer chronically ill. I just have a couple of things I'm dealing with, but I'm not, I'm not chronically ill anymore. And this is somebody who my adrenals were shot, my hormones were completely out of whack, and I had five doctors tell me to put a pacemaker in my chest, and I said no. And now they're like, oh, we're glad you didn't put a pacemaker in your chest. <laughs> so um, it was really turning it over, but yet still taking action. Um, but I do believe the emotional component is huge, for me at least it was. Thanks for the question. Go ahead. Um, thank you so much. Um, if you mentioned it before, I'm sorry. Um, what is your abstinence and what does your um, physical routine look like? Like, how do you bring in exercise and fitness in a healthy way? Okay. Um, so what is my the question is what does my abstinence look like and how do I bring in the physical part of I guess it's the uh, plan of action tool into my recovery um, my, ab- my abstinence is three meals a day and up to three snacks <coughs> nothing in between I am diagnosed with hypoglycemia um, so that's been important to me but for me if I take a lick of a spoon or if I take a nibble of something or if I have an extra meal I have broken my abstinence it's black and white just like an alcoholic who takes a drink so for me there's none of this oh it's so hard we have to eat to survive and, I, and it's so gray and for me it's very black and white if I eat like in between meals I've broken my abstinence having said that I have a list of alcoholic foods that I abstain from it talks about in the doctor's opinion you know the allergy of the body the obsession of the mind so I'm very very clear on what foods trigger my obsession my compulsive overeating and then the third component is my food plan um, for a lot of people and I was taught this myself my abstinence is perfect my food plan is imperfect but after having relapsed in a grand fashion my food plan I don't mess with it. I don't add an extra green bean. I don't add an extra this and that because I know that once that, that my will has come into my food, the, the abstinence and the alcoholic foods are just the next thing. Um, my food plan used to be a commercial food program and then it became counting calories. And I have, I'm kind of a, almost an automaton in ways, like day in and day out, you give me a number to stick to, and that's like my commitment, and I stick to that that, that calorie count. And it's actually a comfort for me. I don't feel restricted. I don't feel like, oh, my life is so, you know, how dare you pin me in like this. Um, no, I know what foods keep me free from the obsession, and the top two that I have a problem with are sugar, you know, recreational sugar and white and wheat flour. Those are the biggest, biggest problems for me. And um, as far as the physical aspect of my, my program, uh, I lost all my weight walking. I walk. I love walking. I'm actually kind of a little baby when it If I miss a day of walking, I'm like, oh, man, I, this is picking me off because I love to go out and walk. But I've been encouraged by my doctors to do more cardiovascular, like hiking and swimming. And that's a slower process for me because I am working through old ideas that if I'm gonna if I push myself in a cardiovascular way, I will get sick. So that's the thing that I still have to but walking has been great because it helps me not only physically but emotionally, um, and to just be grounded in 
you know, nature. And it started out with, as I said, like a five-minute walk, and now I walk around the Rose Bowl almost every day, and it's 3.5 miles, and, um, and I love it. So that's pretty much my exercise. We can't keep it if we don't give it away. How do you work with others? The question is, um, how do I work with others? I sponsor when I'm asked, and uh, I'm not asked very often. And when I am, I find that the people that come into my life aren't willing to do the work. So I don't get too many opportunities. And there was a time for about a year and a half where I did not sponsor because it really got to me that people would say they would do the work and they didn't. And so I had to get to a point where I didn't take somebody's unwillingness personally. And those, those are old childhood things because I grew up with a mom that would say a lot and do very little. And so I just, um, I was working with somebody for the last seven or eight months and she was doing well and then she relapsed and decided to go on with another sponsor. And I was kind of like, what, what just happened? Like... And, and it, it's not personal. It's not personal. So I'm open to the opportunity, but it doesn't come up very much. And I'm not somebody that can sponsor a bunch of people. Like, I don't have the bandwidth when being in school full-time or being in school and working full-time to be able to do that. I also give service wherever I can. I speak. I have service commits if I can. And so I do believe in giving back. Um, but I can't force somebody to be sponsored by me. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Um, so you said you work or your training to be in the ministry. Um, I guess my question is how has your concept of God, um, I guess before you came into the program, working program, but even now going into ministry, how has it changed or does it ever conflict with God's recovery and God in ministry? Thank you. So the question is, how has my concept of God um, changed from the time I came in and now going into being a minister? Um, and does it ever conflict with OA? Um, as I said, I came in as an agnostic. And then within those first few years, I came to believe in a power greater than myself. And then the second time around in 2002, I came to rely upon God more instead of, as it talks about in the big book, agnostic as to application, like, hey, I believe in you, God, but I'm not going to rely on you for anything. Um, and it's been interesting. I've always been open to, like, this is what I think of God today, but I'm open to something greater or something different. Um, because I know as a finite being, at least in this moment, I'm finite, how can I ever comprehend the full meaning of what God is or what a higher power is? So I don't, I don't claim to, like, I know because I don't know. Um, for me, whatever I learn in ministerial school or in the studies I've, I've done, I always keep that firm belief that, like, there is a God that I pray to. I'm encouraged not to do that now. I'm encouraged that it comes from within and that I'm an aspect of God. But in my mind, I need to keep that humbleness going. So, and right now, uh, my mind's actually being blown a little bit. Oh, with that, it's funny that you ask, 
and I'm reading things and learning things and I'm like oh my god this is just freaking me out and you know uh, what I am learning is that God is pure love and that God is wants nothing but goodness for each and every one of us and I'm learning other things that I'm like maybe that's not maybe I don't have to believe that and I'm open to believing that thank you Um, so regardless of what I learn the bottom line is that my higher power loves me wants the best for me never judges me and it's always guiding me whether I'm open to it or not. Those are the basic things that I will not let go of, whether whatever the concept ends up being. Um, I do not have a punishing God. I do not have a God that's laughing because I made plans. I don't have a God that's saying, oh, I'm going to give you this lesson today. Like, I don't believe any of that. Um, and so that is, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't rely upon a higher power. I would be like... Well, if you're judging me and laughing at me, then I'm just going to go try this stuff on my own. Like, so that's never worked. And I love it in program where, you know, sponsors encourage, some sponsors encourage their sponsees to, you know, in step two, to come up with a, their, con- their own conception of a higher power. Because ultimately, I have to feel connected and comfortable with what my higher power is. So. Wow. <laughs> Jack. I mean... Mike. <laughs> um, I'm sorry I missed your pitch. So if you've answered this already in your pitch, say, see me after the meeting. Um, I have a hard time believing <coughs> that God when I have people in my family who are suffering. And daughter had done surgery yesterday. She was riding in the games. And it, uh, it messes with me. When you come to the other side, I know, yes, God is there all the time. But when you went through your previous physical stuff, how do you keep that connection and you know, think that God is, is all loving and caring and all that stuff? I think it's probably an idea. So the question I'm, I'm going to paraphrase is, um, how do you keep your connection to God when things aren't looking good and when people around you are in pain and, and things of, the, of that nature? Well, I have to start by saying um, I don't always have days where I'm like, oh, this is great, you know. But I've had to learn. This too shall pass is one of my favorite things because if I can't understand something, I'm like, this too shall pass. And I have had to learn that everybody in my life has their own higher power and that everybody in life has their own choice. So if they're choosing to not go to their higher power, I can't force them to do so. And that life sometimes has pain and sometimes has challenges and that I can't stop that. Like, even for me, if I have pain, I have to trust that I'll get to the other side, but not, I can't, like, rally against God and be like, why am I in pain, you know? My habit is blaming myself. Like, what is it in me that's attracting this experience right now? Um, And really, it's, I I don't have the magic answer, but um, just trusting that I'm going to be lovingly taken care of through it and that it will pass for them and for me, that's been the when I have the most peace. If I try to judge it or change it, that's when I have the most pain. So that's all I know about that. Thank you for sharing. Um, can you uh, talk about step six and seven and how that will work for you? 
Oh, the question is, can you talk about step six and seven and how that has worked for you? I, it came in my mind earlier today or yesterday that I hope nobody talks asks me about step six and seven. Because I have worked that those steps over and over again, and to me, I make them into this, like, harder than they need to be kind of a thing. I've read outside books on it, sponsored, directed at the time. I'm now on step six in another program, and I'm like, well, maybe this will shed some more light on step six and seven. I know that when I address my character defects, it's usually in a ten step, because I look at, okay, I'm pissed off, and this person has done whatever, and here are my defects of character that are popping up that I need. So for me, I look at my defects of character, what that is affecting, and then I a lot of times list the opposites and then I write out the seven step prayer and then I read that to somebody. So for me it's not necessarily doing six and seven at the time, you know, when I'm, I do it when I'm in six and seven, but I try to incorporate it into step ten because, and I'm trying to do that on my nightly ten step because if I just say, I do the, out of the big book, the, the questions on uh, page 86, and if it says, were you resentful today? And I go, yeah, so-and-so. And I don't look at my part and be like, okay, thank you, we'll wrap up. If I don't look at my part and say, oh, I was self-centered, I was prideful, I was controlling, then I'm just going to keep writing every night that I'm resentful. And um, So I wish I had a better answer. But... Um, one day I'm going to get to a point where I can make step six and seven easy and not. I know it's letting go and letting God essentially and being ready. In fact, yesterday I just looked up the definition of being entirely ready. And so, entirely ready, okay, to me that's trusting in God enough to let it go. And so, more will be revealed. Yay. <laughs>